So, again, I thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, a message that is uh, particularly important in light of the decisions that were made here at Vacation Bible School. But before getting into that, uh, I want to share a story with you about uh, these uh, three friends who died in a car crash. And they make it to heaven, and they're going through orientation. Amen? Okay? They're going through orientation in heaven, and all three are asked the same question. And that question is this. When you are in your casket and your family and friends are looking over you and they're mourning for you, what would you like to hear them say about you? Well, the first guy immediately responded, I would like to hear them say that I was one of the greatest doctors of my time and that I was a great family man. The second man responded and said, I would like to hear that I was a wonderful husband and a school teacher that made a huge difference in the lives of the children for tomorrow. And then the third guy thinks for a minute and he says, I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. <laughs> most people, most people will fight tooth and nail to stay alive as long as they possibly can in this world. Why? Why do they want to stay alive so long in this world? Well, one thing is, one reason is, is because people are in love with this world. Many people are in love with this world. They've, if they've experienced anything good, they cling to that good, and they don't want to give it up. Another reason is that people are naturally afraid of dying. They, uh, they, they don't know what will happen. They don't know how it will happen. Maybe they fear hell. And in that case, fear is a good motivator, Amen. But some people are just afraid of dying. But the sad truth is this. Listen carefully. Many people are already dead and they don't know it. Many people are already dead spiritually and they don't know it. They're dead to God and they're dead to Christ. But if God created them, how could that be? How could they be dead if God created them? Sin has made them dead. Now, it's not very popular these days to preach on sin. Amen? But guess what I'm preaching on this morning? I'm preaching on sin. Few college coaches have ever hated drugs more than Coach Irk Russell of the Georgia Southern College. Irk Russell at a team meeting once arranged for a bunch of good old boys to come in to a team meeting and throw a six-foot-long hissing rattlesnake on the table right in front of the team. Russell said, immediately, all those college football boys screamed like girls and they scattered. Russell said, here's what I told them. He said, I told them that when cocaine comes into the room, they're not nearly as likely to scatter 
is when a rattlesnake comes into the room, but both of them will kill you. Sin, in its various forms, has had a dreadful effect on this world. Sin kills people. Sin kills people. It deadens them to God. It deadens them to Christ. It deadens them to all things spiritual. But sometimes it's hard to see. It's hard to recognize the sin. Gary Richmond was a zookeeper who said that at 24 months old, raccoons go through a glandular change that sometimes makes them attack their owners. He said a 30-pound raccoon can give a 100-pound dog all it wants in a scrap. So when Gary's friend Julie came over to his house and told him about her new pet raccoon, Gary said, listen here, that raccoon will change. That raccoon will change, and potentially that raccoon will be very dangerous. And so Julie listened politely, and she said, oh, it will be different for me. Oh, my pet raccoon bandit, he would never hurt me. He would never do such a thing. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations that were inflicted when that adult raccoon turned on her for no apparent reason. Likewise, sin, sin often comes dressed in an adorable disguise. It often comes in a disguise, and as we begin to play with sin, we say, oh, it'll be different for me. My sin would never hurt me. But sin may seem harmless. It may even seem pleasurable for a moment. But make no doubt about it. It will turn on you. Your sin will turn on you and it potentially could mar you maybe for life. Sin takes over, it takes control of your life and it makes people into the walking dead. But there is an escape. Jesus Christ and him alone is our victory over sin. Just listen to what Paul wrote to the Roman believers. Again, he's writing to believers to remind them in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. If you play with sin, the consequence is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, today Paul is going to show us the path to how to become alive in Christ. How to become alive in Christ. The first thing you need to understand is, is, first of all, we all begin the path in the same place. Every one of us begins the path being dead in sin. That was us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along in your Bibles, if you will. We're going to take these off in small, bite-sized chunks. Amen? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, 
And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. I don't know about y'all, but dead does not sound good. Amen? Dead does not sound good. These verses, 1 through 3, are basically talking about the walking dead. And it's not talking about a TV series. Friend, it's talking about reality. There are people walking around and they're dead. Many people are dead, yet they are alive. Many people are dead spiritually, but they're totally unaware of their true spiritual condition. They're dead, and they don't even know it. I read this story about a Christian slave, because this thing about sin, man, it comes along so subtly. It can sneak up on you, and the enemy is against you. But listen to this story. A Christian slave was overheard by his master, and the slave was groaning and complaining and pleading with the Lord to free him from the power of the devil. And as he was praying, his master said, Son, you seem to be having a great deal of trouble with the devil. But look at me. I don't have any trouble with the devil. You're a good praying Christian. I'm not a Christian, yet he doesn't bother me at all. The slave replied, though, Sir, when you are out shooting ducks, do you send your ducks after those ducks that fall dead? Or do you send your dog after the ones that are wounded that are trying to get away? And the master said, well, of course, I send the dog after the wounded ones. The dead ones I'm sure of. The dead ones I'm sure of. But the wounded ducks will try to get away. I can go back and pick them dead ones up anytime. The slave then said, so it is with Satan. That's exactly what Satan does. He already has those who are not born again. He already has those who are not part of the family of God. He already has those that are not believers. But he knows that the Lord are the, uh, he knows that those that the Lord has are the ones he better send his dogs after. Those are the ones living in a world of sin that are tempted to sin. But he knows also that he can just go pick up those other ones later. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Those that have not given their lives to Christ, those that have not surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus, those that have not placed their faith in Christ are as good as dead ducks. They're walking around, but they're dead. The devil's already got them. It don't take much to lead them into a, a path of sin because they're already living in it. They're already living in sin. So everybody starts in this lane of life the same. We all start dead in sin. That's us. 
That's the way we all started. But the next step on the path is rich in mercy. Now that's God. Let's read some more verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4 says, but God. Say, but God. But God. Say it again. One more time. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then down in verse 8, he reiterates that saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God is merciful, but God is also gracious. What does mercy mean? Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve, which is punishment. But grace means you do get what you don't deserve. And that's salvation, being saved from your sins. Someone said the two greatest words in all the Bible are the words you just repeated. What were they? Say it louder. But God. But God. In his book, The Applause of Heaven, Max Licato writes, By the book I am guilty as charged. I am guilty, but God's love says I get another chance. By the law I'm indicted and I should be put away forever. But by mercy, God says I get a fresh start. I get a clean slate. I get a new beginning. For it is by grace that I have been saved, not by works that I might boast. By grace. Friends, there is no other religion in the world that has this kind of message. Every other religion in the world demand that you have the right performance. Demands that you have the right sacrifice. Demands that you have the right chant. Demands you have the right ritual. Demands you go to the right church. Demands that you have the right seance. Demands that you have the right experience. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Christ's kingdom is that of grace. Theirs is a kingdom of trade-offs. It's a kingdom, a kingdom where uh, you've got to do something in order to have God bless you. If you do this, God will do this. But Christ's kingdom is different. It's not uh, an, a, a kingdom that is based on arrogance or fear. Arrogance thinks, oh, I've achieved it. I'm religious. But fear is over here saying, I haven't achieved it. And I'm scared. Christ's kingdom is just the opposite, though. Christ's kingdom says, this is a kingdom for the poor. This is a kingdom, friend, where membership is granted, not purchased. This is a kingdom, friend, where you are adopted into the kingdom of God. This occurs not when you do enough. But when you admit that you can never do enough. 
Christ's kingdom. As a result of being a part of Christ's kingdom, we serve, we work, we do the Lord's work, not because we're being arrogant, not because we're being fearful. We serve the Lord out of gratitude. We serve the Lord because we're grateful for what he's given us. I read another story about a woman who was married to a very harsh husband. And this husband each day would leave a list of chores for her to do. And man, if she didn't do those chores by the time he got home from work, she was going to get the blunt end of, her, of his anger. Things like clean the yard, wash those windows, stack the firewood. And if she didn't get them, she was in trouble. But even if she did complete the list, he'd always find something that wasn't quite adequate, something that she didn't quite do enough of. But after several years, that husband passed away. You want to give him a hand? <laughs> he passed away. And sometime after that, that woman remarried. And this time, she married a man who lavished her with love, who lavished her with tenderness and adoration. And one day, while going through a box of papers, she came upon one of her first husband's lists. And she began to read that list. And as she was reading that list, a tear of joy splashed down on the paper. And she wondered... Why do I continue to do these things? Why do I continue to serve my husband? Why do I continue to work in the home? It's not because I'm forced to or I'm scared to. It's because I love him. And that's the difference, friend, with Christians. That's the unique characteristic of God's kingdom, friend. As subjects of the kingdom of God, we don't work in order to go to heaven. We work because we are going to heaven. Amen? Arrogance and fear are replaced with gratitude and joy. So Christians can boldly proclaim that grace really has precious little to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with my resolve or my lack of resolve. It has everything to do with God. It has everything to do with his mercy. It's all about him. Dead in sin, that was us. Rich in mercy, that's God. And finally today, alive in Christ, now that's us today. Let's read verses 4 and 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm alive! I'm alive! That should be every Christian scream. Every one of us can shout those words. I'm alive. I'm alive. 
They're true, and they're true because of Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes life more abundant. He is the one who makes you alive. He is the one who gives you life. He is the one. And because of his great love, we can know that he has us as his family forever. Back in the early 1800s, a man named William Whiting Borden was a Christian missionary to Egypt, but he was also heir to the Borden family fortune. And William had graduated from Yale University. He also graduated from Princeton Seminary. And he came to Christ under the ministry of D.L. Moody. Many, many of you may have heard of him. But he decided later that he was going to become a missionary to the Muslims of China. And in doing so, he died. He died of spinal meningitis at the tender age of 25 years old. But after his death, William Borden's Bible was sent back to his parents. And as mom and dad were looking through their Bible, through his Bible, they came across the words, no reserve. And there was a date by that note. And the date by that note, no reserve, was the date that William Borden renounced his family fortune in order to go be a missionary. On further in his Bible, the parents found the words, no retreat. And there was a date by that note. And that date corresponded with the day that his dad told him that he would never, ever again work for the Borden Company in his life. And then finally, there was a third phrase. As he went to Egypt and died, it said, no regrets. Is this the theme of your life? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Friend, that ought to be the, 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 the sentence for every one of us. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets while you're following Jesus. No reserve, no regrets, no retreat while you're doing the work of God. Why did William, William Borden do that? Because he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord Jesus, knew he was going to heaven, and wanted to honor the Father with his life. But there's another story and a question I want to ask you. It comes from the scriptures and it's found in Philippians where the Bible says that your attitude, y'all getting this? Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider him equal with God or consider that equality something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, Jesus humbled himself. And he became obedient. Obedient to death. Even obedient to death on the cross. So the summary goes like this. Jesus left his home in heaven for earth and he did it for one purpose. 
That was to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, the Bible said your attitude ought to be the same as Christ Jesus. Is that your purpose? To see someone saved? To seek and to save that which is lost? Why would Jesus do such a thing? The overriding purpose is because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the purpose. We are made alive because of his great love. Satan wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to tear you down. But Jesus wants to bring you life and to bring it more abundantly. W.B. Henson was a great preacher of yesteryear, and he said, once a doctor told me, sir, you have an illness from which you will never recover. You're getting ready to die. And William Henson said, when I got home, I walked outside, and I looked out over the countryside, and I said, I may not see you many more times, mountain, but I'm going to be alive when you crumble. And he looked out and further into the countryside and he said to that river, River, I may not be around to see you flow into the sea, but I'm going to be alive when you dry up. And then he said, Stars, I'm going to be alive when you have fallen from your place in the sky. Because I'm alive in Christ. We can be alive now. But we can also be alive forever according to the word of God. And it's all because of Jesus. Amen? The question of the day is this. I asked the children... If I give you a gift, but you don't receive it, is it still a gift? No, the gift has to be received. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Have you accepted the gift? Have you accepted the gift? What is the gift? The gift of God is the grace of God all wrapped up in the Son of God. That's the gift. Have you received the gift? Friend, without trusting in him, the consequences are clearly eternal death. But God. Say, but God. But God gave us a gift, and that gift provides us with eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. My question is, will you accept the gift? Let's pray together.